If you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. And I promise we will get there eventually, but we're going to take a sort of roundabout route. Um, For the past two Sundays, we have been trying to address this question of how the the truth that we are followers of Jesus, um, how that affects the way that we think about and interact with the governing authorities of whatever nation we might live in. Um, Another way to say it might be, does the fact that I'm a Christian have any bearing on my understanding of the government that I am called to live in? We speak of the separation between church and state. Uh, But we are people who are the church, we are Christians, and we live in the state. And so in some sense, we are, there is no separation, uh, and yet there is. How do we wrestle with these questions? And so we've looked at a few key passages. We looked at Romans 13, we looked at 1 Peter 2, we looked at 1 Timothy 2, in trying to find an answer to that question and other questions. Um, And so let me just sort of summarize a little bit. Uh, we found that the main command in both of those passages is submit to or subject yourself to the governing authorities. Uh, Both Paul and Peter tell us that in almost all situations, we are able to submit to those that are in authority over us, including governing authorities, and we're able to do that in a way that glorifies God, which is good because as Christians, that's our ultimate purpose is to glorify God, And so there's a way that we can submit to most authorities almost all the time in a way that honors God. Uh, Romans 13, Paul gives us, answers the why question with sort of the the reason why we should submit. And his point, namely, is that uh, all authority is ultimately from God. So to disobey the governing authorities is therefore to disobey God or to obey them is to obey God. And those who have been given this power by God... um, as governing authorities, have the right to either reward or punish those who obey or disobey. Uh, And that obedience we saw in Romans 13 extends all the way to the giving of taxes, but also simply to giving honor and respect to whoever it's due. So that's Romans 13, the reason why we should submit. And 1 Peter 2 gives us sort of a different answer to that why question, and it's more the purpose for why we should submit um, to the governing authorities. And it has to do with with doing good works so that others would see the glory of God in us and be drawn to him. So there's a way in which living as good citizens in this world is a means of silencing those who would accuse us of evil for following Christ and would actually, as living, living as good citizens under the rule of God but also under governing authorities, would, would show forth good works in such a profound way that people would turn and glorify God because of the way that we live our lives within the society that we find ourselves. So that's Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and then in 1 Timothy 2, it's it's not surprising to find that our great goal then with regard to governing authorities is that we would simply be allowed to live peaceful, godly lives that are filled with good works. That's really all we want. We are not called to pray that our government would be a Christian government or that our government would become an arm of the church but rather that the government would keep, would not keep us from being Christians or working as the church in the world. That's our great goal. And so we are to submit to governing authorities as long as they do not call us to break the commands of God. He is the ultimate authority. Um, or to violate our God-given conscience. And that's where it gets muddy. Where is our conscience and how do we protest if necessary? 
we said last week that therefore our goal is not to be a Christian nation in the sense that we don't want the government to make laws regarding the establishment of religion, even if it's ours. Uh, we don't want leaders telling us what to believe, even if they're telling us to believe biblical Christianity. Because faith is not something that anyone can be coerced into. It's, it's not um, something that people can be forced to believe. And so we don't want the government forcing other people to believe even what we believe. And obviously we don't want people forcing us to believe what we don't believe. So the question, based on all of that, so flowing from all of that that we've talked about for two weeks, sorry if you're coming into the middle of this, uh, the question this morning that actually my wife really helped me come to grips with is, is there a difference between this desire for a uniquely Christian nation, a theocracy as it were, where God rules over the nation, is there a difference between the desire for that and the desire that our nation simply promote what we would call a biblical ethic? or a Christian ethic, or Christian values, we might even say. Is there a difference between desiring a Christian government and simply desiring that the government in which we live, the society in which we live, reflect Christian principles and ethics? So again, our goal is not to Christianize the government, but can we desire for our nation to reflect the life-giving law of God in the laws of the land in which we live? And if that's true, if we can desire that, what's that going to look like as we interact with people that might disagree with God's law? So, very simply, um, I, I believe that we should seek to see God's ways and his laws and his values promoted in society. And I believe that the way we will do that primarily is through living lives that are filled with grace and truth. So we're going to kind of talk about those two ideas. Um, the big one would be, uh, the first one is going to be thinking about um, if we are called to promote a Christian ethic or Christian values or godly principles for living within society through government, uh, why should we do that? And some sort of thinking about that question. And then thinking about this idea of grace and truth as we interact with those that might disagree with us or the government as it disagrees with us. So that's the hope. Um, so first of all, why, why do I say that we should promote this biblical ethic within society? Uh, very basically, I think we could say this. A Christian ethic is good for society. A Christian ethic is good for society. So why should we promote it? Because it's, it's good. Uh, God's laws are always for our good. And when we obey him, uh, we thrive as his creatures. So God knows what's best. And he commands what is best for us. Um, you might think about soil that a crop grows in. So my father-in-law's here, and he knows much more about soils than I ever will. Um, but he could tell you about the makeup of a soil and, and what needs to be in that soil for that plant to grow best and produce the best crop that, that, that you could have um, and what the chemical balance should be and how you might need to tweak it. And in a similar way, God has, has given us laws. He's given us this soil of laws, as it were, this ethic which, in which we are to live. And it's the perfect soil for human beings to thrive and be fruitful in. Um, God has, has given us his law, and that's what's best. The blessing of, of holy living doesn't necessarily require that a person uh, be a Christian, or even a person who fears God. A society that values life and rejects murder is a society that's going to thrive much more than a society that does the opposite. A society that values marriage and children and seeks to strengthen families, that's a society that will flourish. Now, a society that agrees that people should not lie or steal 
or commit adultery is a society that most often knows greater peace and greater prosperity within it. Um, I used to have a professor that would say, if I took this room and divided it in half, and I told this half, do everything you can to disobey the Ten Commandments, and I told this half, do everything you can to obey the Ten Commandments, in ten years, you know, 90% of this half would be either dead or in jail, and this half would probably be much more fruitful. There's just a principle that God's laws are for our good. He says that, Deuteronomy 6, 24, when children are to ask, why has God given us his statutes? Parents, in part, are to answer, Deuteronomy 6, 24, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So why does God give us his, why did God give his law in the first place? For our good and to preserve our lives. That's the point. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, he says something similar. And now Israel, what does God, the Lord, your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. Why? For your good. That's the point of God's law. And what's the summary of the law that Jesus gives? It's to love God and to love our neighbor. Even if you cut off the first half, if you just said, love your neighbor as yourselves, do to others as you would have them do unto, unto you, relationships in any society at large would function better if everyone was seeking to live in that way. And so a Christian ethic is good for society in general. Whether citizens fear God or not, God's laws are for our good and so we should promote them. Why? Because we love people and we want them to flourish and because it's good. That's the ultimate goal. The problem is if we stop there, we can start to kind of go sideways a little bit and drift into some dangerous territory. So we can affirm that a Christian ethic is good for society. But I think there's some other things we should keep in mind. So let me give you a few more ideas as we think about this why. One would be a Christian ethic does not make Christians. Is a Christian ethic good for society? Yes. A Christian ethic does not make Christians, nor does it make a Christian nation. Can a nation be a Christian? I don't think so, really, when you think about what a Christian is. It can promote Christian principles, but a, a nation cannot necessarily be Christian. So does a Christian ethic make Christians? No. If we forget that, if we forget that there is no one but Jesus who is righteous and that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God, then we will begin to think that what we do and who we are is what makes us Christians rather than what Jesus has done and who he, who he is that makes us his children. We are not Christians because we are good. We are made good through faith in Jesus, and out of his strength then we are called to do good in society. The good news of the gospel is not that God has given us his perfect law. In fact, it's that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law in a way that we never could. The good news is not that we can be good enough to escape the punishment for our law breaking, but that Jesus, who never broke the law, has taken the punishment for our law breaking through his death. The good news is not that we can earn eternal life, but that Jesus has risen again over death and offers new life freely without cost to everyone who will repent and believe. So let me be clear, brothers and sisters, never forget that what the world needs is not the ethic of Jesus. The world needs Jesus for salvation. Without Jesus, following his ways are of no value except in this life. And maybe not even then. 
Let me make that point. So a Christian ethic is good for society. A Christian ethic does not make Christians. And, and the third thing I want to say is a Christian ethic does not guarantee blessing on society. It doesn't guarantee, a Christian ethic does not guarantee blessing on a society. Now some of this has to do with how a society would define blessing. Um, and nations might have a different definition of blessing than, than God does. Do they want to follow God's ways and know the blessings of God, even if that would mean financial loss for that nation? Well, probably not. The unique thing about God's laws is that you can follow them all perfectly and still suffer. Now, in general, when we follow God's laws, it is for our good and for our flourishing, and it's for blessing. But that blessing is the glory of God, and it's his, his name being lifted up, in, and, it's, and it's an eternal perspective. 1 Peter 3.17 says something interesting. It says that it may be God's will, God's will, his purpose, for you to suffer for doing good. That's interesting. And it's not something that we would normally say. So a society could say, this is what's best, do this, and you might suffer for it. It doesn't necessarily connect. And that's part of the reason that things get difficult if you separate out those Ten Commandments. Is it good to keep what we would call the second table of the of the New Test of the of the Ten Commandments. Yes, don't kill, don't murder, all all of those general principles. Is that good for society? Yes. But disconnected from the first table about having no other gods and worshiping God alone, it kind of loses its punch to a certain extent. Let me try to explain that. So if we have other gods, which the Ten Commandments say not to do, uh, obeying the law of not lying is not always going to bring the blessing that we want. If our culture holds up an idol of choice or an idol of money, then laws like don't murder and don't covet will not bring the blessings that they want. So the solution, if that's the problem, if, if, if just keeping this first, the second table of the Ten Commandments, it, doesn't, it kind of loses its punch when it's disconnected from the first of, of loving God, the solution isn't to make a society that then adopts this part. So again, that idea of making a Christian nation or a theocracy, that's not the solution. There is no solution until Jesus comes. There will be no perfect government until Jesus comes and he is king and every knee does bow and obeys this first table of the, the, the Ten Commandments and the second table in conjunction but I think it's helpful to see that while this Christian ethic is good for society, the good and the blessing that flow from God's law is ultimately found when we're following God first, not just his ways. Here's a, an, inaccurate, or an, an inadequate illustration. Are vitamins good for you? Yeah, typically. But if all you do is take vitamins and you don't live a healthy lifestyle, you don't diet, not even diet, you don't just eat fruits and vegetables, and you don't maybe exercise, well, vitamins might do something good for you. There's a possibility. But your whole lifestyle isn't oriented around the idea of health. And so while they may have some benefit, they're not going to have the greatest benefit. Again, inadequate. But I think there are benefits from following God's laws, and that's why we want to promote them in society. But we also realize that ultimately it's not going to have the greatest benefit because they flow from our worship of God alone, our submission to him as king. And that's why we do what we do. So a Christian ethic is good for society. A Christian ethic does not make Christians, though. And a Christian ethic doesn't guarantee blessing. 
And then one just in passing, I'll say this because I think we've talked about it enough, but a Christian ethic is not required for Christians to obey God in government. A Christian ethic is not required for Christians to obey, to submit to God and to the government. The society in which I live does not have to promote Christian values for me to submit to it in a way that honors God. Um, remembering all these caveats for God's commands are ultimate and our conscience is, is important. This is difficult stuff. To, and I found this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that I think is, is helpful. He, this is um, from an address in December 18, 1963 that I found just brings some of this together. So here are these words in the midst of the civil rights movement. He says, now the other myth that gets around is the idea that legislation cannot really solve the problem and that it has no great role to play in this period of social change because you've got to change the heart and you can't change the heart through legislation. You can't legislate morals. The job must be done through education and religion. So the idea would be then, is there a point in promoting God's law without promoting heart change? Are we just making people do something that they don't really want to do? He says, well, there's a half-truth involved here. Certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. We agree. Religion and education must play a great role in changing the heart. But we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. Listen to this. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that is pretty important also. So there is a need for executive order. There is a need for judicial decrees. There is a need for civil rights legislation on the local scale within states and on the national scale from the federal government. I think that's a great distinction. Do we need heart change ultimately? Yes. But isn't it good for society to have some laws that promote godly principles? Yes. And so we're going to vote for those who reflect our values and who promote legislation that upholds God's laws, not because it saves people or our nation or because without that we can't obey God, but because it most often leads to the thriving and the flourishing of people who are created in the image of God. We want to create a soil for people to flourish in. And we also will protest and we will speak against laws that oppose the law of God. Why? Because we love people and we long for them to know the blessing of living under the freeing authority of God. And remember, having said all that, remember, our core identity, though, is as free servants of God and exiles in this world. And our great responsibility, based on 1 Peter 2, is to live godly lives, no matter what the governing authorities say to do or not to do. If they're going to promote a Christian ethic, then obviously we will do it, and we will follow it. If they proclaim the opposite, we will disagree with it, and we will follow our conscience, even if it means persecution or punishment. I think sometimes we think about the history of America, and as Christians we would say that in the past they were more able to live out their faith freely as a majority within this nation. And it would seem that followers of Jesus, though, but I would say that we have always had this tension. We've always been called to, to stand for God's truth and holiness, and we have always faced opposition to that. There is not some time period where that wasn't true. In fact, often the church probably should have felt more of a tension than it did, and instead just sort of trusted the presiding ethic of the day, which was in fact opposed to God's ways. You can look in, in 
1861 to 65 and find churches that promoted race-based slavery based on biblical principles. And we would look at that now and say it's ridiculous, but it went along with the ethic of the land. Even then, you had to stand for the truth against what the government had to say. So this has always been an issue. It's always some attention that we live in. So then if there's a reason to promote that ethic, how do we live in a society where there is a conflict between what God has said is best and the, the law of the land? And not just the law of the land, because there's probably not laws that are telling us not to do things, but even just the, the presiding um, temperature of the land and what's, what's seen as right. And not just even the land, but people. Because to be honest, very few, if any of us, are going to stand on the floor of Congress and promote some sort of law that needs to be enacted. But we are going to talk to people that we work with, and we're going to talk to people that are in our family, and we're going to have discussions about things that we disagree on. How do we as Christians promote this ethic of, of what Scripture says as best? And how do we do that within a society that is often opposed to us? Here's where I'm driving at with this. If, this, if I had to have one big idea for you to walk away with, it would be this. In all circumstances, we are called to live lives filled with grace and truth. In all circumstances, we are called to live lives that are filled with grace and truth. Not grace or truth. Grace and truth. Okay? And we're going to finally get to John now. So John opens his gospel in John chapter 1, and he introduces Jesus to us. He describes Jesus as the eternal word by whom and through him through whom everything was made. He exalts him as the light of the world that scatters all darkness. He tells how Jesus was rejected by those he had come to save, but how those who believe in him were given the right to be called children of God. And then he says of Jesus, the word in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word, Jesus comes and dwells among us. And he dwells in a government, in a world system, in a society. And as he comes, the, the description is used twice here that he was filled with grace and truth. A little book that uh, Carolyn gave me that was very helpful called The Grace and Truth Paradox. Randy Alcorn writes this. What does it mean to be like Jesus? We could come up with long lists of his character qualities, but the longer the list, the less we can wrap our minds around it. But what if the character of Jesus was reducible to two ingredients? In fact, it is. He then quotes John 1.14 and then says, Jesus is full of two things, grace and truth. Not full of patience, wisdom, beauty, compassion, and creativity. In the list, there are no commas and only one conjunction, grace and truth. Scripture distills Christ's attributes into a two-point checklist of Christ-likeness. Now, I'd say this. Jesus can't be distilled into anything, <laughs> especially a two-point checklist. But 
We hear what Alcorn is saying, don't we? That because that, that Jesus, the character of Christ and how he interacts in the world can be found in these two principles, grace and truth. And I think that's a very large part of what John tries to communicate in his gospel. As Jesus interacts with people and authorities, he interacts with them with grace and truth. He meets the woman at the well in John 4. Think about that. He comes to her and he is totally truthful about her sin and the situation that she's in. But she doesn't reject him. She continues to have a conversation with him. Why? Because he's filled with grace and he's calling to her to come to him. Think about John 8, the woman who's caught in adultery and her accusers bring her and throw her down before Jesus. And as Jesus brings to light that situation, the way that it ends is he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Period? No. Go and sin no more. He brings grace into the situation. But he recognizes that what she has done is sin. The passage that, that Joshua read, you think about how Jesus is interacting with Pilate. And there's so much truth. He's even talking about truth. And yet there's so much grace and, and, and trust in the way he is talking to him. Jesus is, you think about, about sinners, which is what we find so often in Scripture, and those that are rejected by society. They, they, they never seem to have any issue with coming to Jesus. And I don't think it was just because he was full of grace to them. He treated them as people who were created in his image. He was gentle and he was merciful, but he was also so clear about what the truth was and about what was right. Because we long for grace, but... We have a conviction of sin, and we want to know the truth. I don't want someone just to code over things and just, you know, butter me up and not really tell me what's real and true. I want to know the truth. But I don't want someone just to tell me the truth and slap me across the face with it. I need some grace that comes with that. And Jesus was so perfect at that. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Jesus is filled with truth about who he is. He's filled with truth about the reality of sin. He's filled with grace towards sinners. And all the way to the very end, even the cross itself. Isn't that the most wonderful example of grace and truth that there is? The truth about sin and its consequences, that they deserve death. But also the grace of God sending his son as our savior to die. The early church picks up on this example of Jesus. So we've talked a lot about Acts 4 when, when Peter and John say they're going to keep talking in Jesus' name even though the authorities tell them not to. Right after that, there's this description of the early church in Acts 4 beginning in verse 32. And it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was, was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Truth. And great grace was upon them all. There, there's, there's grace and truth. They're, they're, they're committed to the truth, but they're so filled with grace, even to one another, sharing all that they have. They're devoted to the truth. They're people of grace. And that set them apart. Again, Alcorn is helpful. He draws this together for us. Let me give you another quote. People had only to look at Jesus to see what God is like. People today should only have to look at us to see what Jesus is like. For better or worse, they'll draw conclusions about Christ from what they see in us. If we fail the grace, the grace test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we fail the truth test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we pass both tests, we're like Jesus. A grace-starved 
truth-starved world needs Jesus, full of grace and truth. So what does this hungry world see when it looks at us? Good question. As we think about it in society, we want to promote the law of God in this world that often opposes it. As the world sees us tackle the major issues of our day, do we reflect grace and truth? It's not easy, and it's not possible apart from God's Spirit working in us through His Word. But the the grace and truth principle that we find here is it, it simplifies things. I find it such a wonderful rubric to think about things through. We can think about issues in the world at large or even in just the lives that are around us and trust that if we want to do what Jesus does, if we want to answer that question, what would Jesus do? We can say, well, he'd probably act with grace and he'd probably act with truth. Truth is honest about sin, right? It doesn't shy away from what God's word says because scripture is the final authority. Truth flows from God's word. It doesn't flow from your personal convictions apart from God's word. It doesn't flow from public opinion, whatever it might be, because it's always changing. It doesn't flow from your political party that you might align with. It flows from God's word. So what is the truth that we stand for? And grace is honest about sin because it comes with compassion, recognizing that sin ultimately, while it's a choice, is also blindness. And it's a choice that takes people away from God. And we want them to... To, to change, but they will only change if God opens their eyes. Grace and truth, when they are joined together, views people and situations clearly and rightly. It helps us see many things. It helps us see that, that solutions are not simple. It's not as simple as we want it to be. That sin is blinding and deceptive towards people. That people are broken by sin. That's true, and that helps us be filled with grace. We see that rebellion brings uh, rebellion against God brings death. That's true, and it should make us have grace towards people. Grace is unearned. Apart from Jesus, true obedience is impossible, and the goal is always the gospel. So we obey the command of Ephesians 4.15. What does Ephesians 4.15 tell us? How do we speak? We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. Whenever we interact with difficult issues and people, we wrestle with between these two things. Let's take some issues, all right? Take the issue of of homosexuality and gay marriage. It's a hot-button topic in our day, right? We can be clear about God's intent for human relationships. We need to be clear on what we believe Scripture says about that. We can speak of relationships like that and say that they are against God's will and God's ways. And we can help people see that from God's Word. But we can do it with grace. We, We can do it recognizing that this is an issue in society that's not just... a a, a political issue it's a struggle of the human heart we can step into a situation a situation with eyes that are not just open to sin and to pointing a finger but eyes that would also be open to brokenness and pain that that's in a person's life we don't shy away from the truth because speaking the truth is actually love but we also don't ignore someone's life experience we don't ignore the reality of the blindness of sin We come to them with with grace and with truth. We speak about the truth about abortion and God's value for all of life. But we we recognize that life is difficult, that people get placed in certain situations and they don't know what to do, that they've been raised in certain situations and they don't know how to respond. We believe all people are created in God's image. That is truth. But we have grace that's active in the ways that we would support moms in crisis 
Grace that would be active when we adopt children, when we help foster kids. We believe all people are created equally, and we want to live in a way that rejects racism, that rejects ethnocentrism or nativism. We come with grace to people who have grown up with wrong ideas about race. And we come with grace to people who have been hurt by racism. But in that grace, we also seek truth and we seek justice because that's God's heart. This cuts across so many issues. It cuts across these huge issues and it cuts across things like you have a friend who's contemplating divorce. Do you come with the truth, guns blazing? Do you come with just grace? You come with both, grace and truth. You have a friend who's lost a loved one. We have things that we know about death and about life after death from God's word. But we also know that life is hard and we come with grace into situations. The danger of truth without grace is that only the people that agree with us will hear us. If we just say truth without any grace seasoning that, it just causes people to put up walls. They don't want to listen to what you have to say. The truth can hurt. In a way, it's supposed to hurt. But tough love is often an excuse for just being a jerk. Right? Sometimes we think that um, the not being political, politically correct, that that's bold, but it's actually just mean to people. The danger of grace without truth is that people feel accepted, but they don't know the truth. And that's ultimately unloving to them. We think we're being so loving by just showing grace in a situation. But is that loving? Jesus was loving enough to come with grace, but also to call people out of sin. Political correctness can become an excuse for not standing up and being bold about the truth. We've fallen both into both categories. Grace without truth seems easy, but it's in fact unkind. I think sometimes we struggle between... Uh, grace and truth, depending on the circumstance. If it's an issue in theory, we are bold for the truth. If it's a person that we're talking to, we show a lot more grace and sometimes let go of the truth. And we need to have these convictions to the point that whether it's an issue in society, we, we see it not just as an issue, but as people that are struggling with it. And we also, when we see people, we realize that there is a truth that comes into that situation that is, in fact, loving. You know, and I think what would help us is if we would pause and think about grace and truth in our own lives. How much grace and truth have we been shown? How has God shown us grace and truth? If we only want to show truth, if we want to just stand firm for the truth and have no grace, maybe we haven't thought about how much God has shown us grace. Maybe we haven't been awed enough by how kind he has been to us in Christ. If we only want to show grace and, and kind of let go of the truth, maybe we're not taking God's truth serious enough. Maybe we're not seeing that he has said some very clear things in his word for our good. And so as we reflect on God's grace and truth to us, it causes us to respond and reflect him, which is what we want to do. So grace and truth. In any and all circumstances, we can respond with grace and truth. Is that simple? Yes, and certainly not. Uh, sometimes the truth hurts people. 
Sometimes it's hard to know when to say the truth. Sometimes it's hard to know what to say on an issue. But speaking with grace and truth is is focused on what's most important to us. Because the attitude of, of grace and truth models ultimately our great goal, and that's the gospel. Grace and truth models the gospel. Our goal is not to win arguments or establish some earthly kingdom or even to see laws enacted or laws repealed. Our goal is to represent Christ in such a compelling way that people turn and come to faith in him. We're not called to the building of a government or the building of arguments, but to the building of the church. And so we confront issues in society and in people's lives, not because we want to be proven right, but because we want people to know the truth found in the love of God through Christ. That is the goal. So we bring the truth about sin. We talk about sin being death and sin being blindness and sin bringing punishment. But we also show grace. We recognize that people are broken and people have faced difficult things in this life. And people have not maybe even been exposed to the truth of God's word. We bring the truth about how God has brought salvation through Jesus by dealing with the judgment that is due to us for rebellion. And we also speak of the grace of God that he sent his only son to die as an atoning sacrifice to bring us back to him. If we fail to speak with grace and truth on the issues of society and the struggles of people, no one will ever listen to us when we start to talk about the truth of the gospel. If we start, if all we have talked about, if all we have done with the issues in society is come with guns blazing about the truth, and then we start to try to talk about the grace of God, they will not have ears to hear us. And if all we have done is talk about grace and then we try to bring truth into a circumstance, they'll say that doesn't make sense with the way that you've lived your life. But if we will live with grace and truth and stand with conviction, but also open our arms to lovingly embrace those who do not agree with us, then what will happen is we'll have a discussion about an issue. And then we'll have a discussion about the gospel. And we'll be able to help them understand the truth. What's at stake here as we... As we think about what's at stake ultimately when we, when we think about how we live in the society that disagrees maybe on different points with where we're at um, on God's laws and God's ethic. What's at stake is, is not the government and it's, and it's not the election and it's not a political party. What is at stake is the witness of the church and your witness as a follower of Christ. And that's more important than anything else. Because the great goal in this world is not the government. The great goal in this world is the glory of God. Let's pause and reflect on God's word, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we ask in your mercy that you would open our eyes to all of the grace and all of the truth that you have shown us in Jesus. Lord, that you would break us of a mean-spirited, finger-pointing attitude, but you would also break us of being weak-kneed about what is right. God, we cannot have this balance on our own, but we want to be like Jesus. Or we want people to know where we stand on things, but that they would also be willing to come and talk to us. Or we want to 
to be clear on the truth, but we also want to love people well. Lord, make us like you in everything and all that we do. But thank you that our salvation is not rooted in us being good because we are not. But thank you for Christ, that he was perfect on our behalf and our great hope is in him. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.